As they prepared to flee the land of Egypt for the wilderness, the children of Israel were in need of more than a means of escape, which God would provide miraculously. They were in need of a change, a change of mindset, a change of attitude, and most of all, a change of heart. God would provide this change through the same means that he provided every other thing the children of Israel needed, his matchless power, his prophets, and his son. A clue to how he did this is found in what else? The name of God. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Hello again. Welcome back to part two of our lesson on bondage, Passover, and Exodus, lesson 13 in your Gospel Doctrine Old Testament manual. We left off around the time the Israelites were leaving Jerusalem. They had just celebrated the Passover. So we might back up in some cases and cover things that were covered at the end of last lesson. And we're going to go up through, we, we got up to about chapter 9 or 10 of Exodus, and we'll go through chapter 14 today. Uh, once again, if you want to get in touch with the program, email me here at the email address gt at gospeltoctrine.com. I'd be happy to respond to your question either on or off air as you prefer, and leave your first name and city if you want to be featured on the program. What did we, what, where did we finish with our last episode? We talked about how in the Passover, God was basically guaranteeing that people we're going to listen to the prophet exa- with exactness and with haste because the way the Passover was observed was very detailed. It was intricate, and it had to be done swiftly. The word had to be gotten out throughout all of Israel. Uh, in one of these chapters, it talks about how there are 600,000 Israelites. Now, that uh, there is some controversy about that number. There are some gospel or some Bible scholars who would say that that number, the word the word for thousand in Hebrew is aleph, and there are some scholars who say that that word is only translated as 1,000 in this verse. And there are others that look at other places the verse is used and say uh, it, it can also mean clan. So there may have been 600,000, and this is just the men, there may have been 600,000 men or there may, there may have been 600 clans, and uh, in which case, we don't know exactly how many people came out. If there were 600,000 men, then you can guess that with women and children included, there would have been about 2 million Israelites. And if there were 600 clans, then there was some fraction of that that would be difficult to to estimate how, how many people are in a clan. We don't know. Uh, but would have been from several dozen to several hundred to perhaps several thousand. So... It could have been half of that number, 600,000, or it could have been uh, less. I, I kind of think it was less. Uh, another another number we get in that same passage is that it was 430 years to the day that Israel had been in Egypt. But that actually, that math does not add up. The, the number of generations that the Bible gives from Joseph to Moses 
is not enough time to allow for 430 years, even de- depending on where you begin the counting. The I've, I've read a number of uh, exegeses, as they call them, uh, biblical explanations about this topic, and the one that sits best with me is that the counting should really begin from the time Abraham entered Egypt, which obviously was five, four or five generations before Joseph, four generations before Joseph. And there hadn't been a lot of reproduction in that time because they, the, the other descendants other than Isaac of Abraham were not counted among the children of Israel. The other descendants of Jacob other than, of, of Isaac other than Jacob were not counted. And so it was really just the children of Jacob. So 70, and it says in the Bible, 70 souls came to Egypt from Israel. And those were the, those were the people that would start this nation that would eventually become 600,000 people, which is another reason to estimate it a little bit low. These are, these are just sort of trivial details, but it's interesting to think about when you read those. And it's good to know that uh, if somebody brings up, oh, this, it wasn't really 430 years, you'll know the answer. Um, so it is assumed that that number might have been a little bit less than 600,000, and it is assumed that the, the time frame would have been less than 430 years. So the children of Israel come out of Egypt, the, and, and let's go back and talk about the plagues for just a moment. Um, if you'll remember, cast your mind back to our, our episode on the creation, and we talked about how the creation, the days of creation, day one, two, and three had different had a repeatable pattern that repeated again with days four, five, and six. And the same thing is true in the plagues of Egypt. The first, fourth, and seventh had a or I, the one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, and nine. So in other words, one, four, and seven, they had a repeatable pattern. And the pattern was that in the first plague, the fourth plague, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and told them what would happen. And then in the second plague, uh, fifth plague, etc., God said, meet Pharaoh where he's going to be, usually on the bank of the Nile. And then in the third plague, it just came. God said, I'm, I command you to do this, and the plague will happen, and Pharaoh may not be aware of it before it comes. And then, the, and then that pattern would be repeated. And that's interesting because, number one, there is a it might have been that God was trying to send through these repeatable patterns that God was trying to send Pharaoh a message that he could predict when things were really going to get, uh, were going to go south, let's say. In other words, it would have been possible for Pharaoh, perhaps possible for Pharaoh to know that the 10th plague would be worse than all the rest. Secondly, Pharaoh worshipped what is called an Ennead, which is a pantheon of nine. There were nine Egyptian gods at any one time, nine chief gods. And it's difficult right now to come up with a one-to-one correspondence of plague to gods, plague to a member of this Egyptian pantheon. But it is interesting to think that that one-to-one correspondence might exist. And if it did, then Pharaoh would have been seeing, oh, the god Hecht, which is the which is the frog-headed god, has just been dominated by Jehovah. The god Hapi, which is the god of the flooding of the Nile, has just been dominated when the, when the Nile turned to blood. And one by one, the gods of the earth, the gods of the sun, the god of the sky, would have been dominated by Jehovah and been shown, and the, 
the scriptural references that you may know there is none like the Lord our God. That's in Exodus 8, verse 6. That was an explicit purpose of these plagues, that you may know there is none like the Lord our God. In other words, um, and and here's a, here's a side note. At one point, Pharaoh says, I have sinned before you and before your God. So Pharaoh could know that there is none like the Lord our God. Now, in Pharaoh's mind, when he admits that he's done the he's sinned before God, to him that doesn't mean he actually has to repent. To him it means, well, I've committed a sin according to of to according to one particular God, but according to another God, I may have done the right thing. So I just have to propitiate, I just have to mollify this one particular God and that might mean an offering, but it doesn't mean I actually have to change my heart. That would have been a foreign concept to him. And the the progression of the plagues was meant to teach him and teach everyone else around him, teach all the Egyptians, because all the Egyptians had been complicit in Pharaoh's genocide. And so the plagues were meant to teach all of them, there is none like the Lord our God. And by the ninth plague, all of the gods had been negated. They'd all been shown to be the frauds that they were. None of them were real. None of them had real power. So as you're thinking about how this, how this would have affected their minds, uh, you can also think about how the justice of God was being served because the 10th plague was truly a terrible plague to slay the firstborn son and the firstborn of the flocks of all of the Egyptians is an awful thing to have happen. How could that possibly be justified? And the answer to me, I, I've thought a lot about it, but the, and I don't profess to know the real answer, but one answer is that the justice of God required a complete testimony and a very well thought out and a very complex and whole repudiation of the pantheon of the Ennead of Egypt. So one by one, all of these gods were proven to be frauds. And by the end of it, Pharaoh had, he didn't just have an idea that God was God and that what the, the deities he'd been worshiping, including himself, by the way, the deities he'd been worshiping were false gods. He didn't just have an idea. He had a perfect knowledge. He had a testimony, we might say today, that God was powerful. And as I was thinking about this, uh, it reminded me of the first chapter of James in the Bible, where it talks about faith without works is dead. What Pharaoh had was a knowledge. And what James said to uh, the, the in the general epistle of James was, you believe there is one God, or thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And I think Pharaoh found himself in the second camp. He believed there was one God. By that point, he knew it. He knew that none of his gods were actually gods, and he knew that Jehovah was actually God. And rather than rejoice in that knowledge, he trembled because he found himself on the side of the devils. He wasn't the Pharaoh who commanded the men children to be thrown in the Nile, and yet he obviously had the guilt associated with that. Maybe he continued the practice when Moses was out of Egypt. We don't have a record. So in, for whatever reason, he was not on the side of Jehovah. And when Jehovah began to uh, bring these 
plagues about. Pharaoh could have repented as the as the Hebrews wrote many times in sackcloth and ashes. He could have said, "Okay, obviously I see there is a powerful being here that is who is truly in charge, and I would like to get right with him." Instead, he said what he said to Moses and Aaron, which is, I've sinned before thy God, help me to get right with him, whatever it might be. And he thought all he had to do was promise. So as we, as we discussed last time, uh, he gave the, there were, there were a few times when he said, if you'll take this plague away, then I'll let you go out and worship. And there were other times when he tried to bargain. He said, okay, go out, but leave your children here, leave your old people here, leave your flocks here. And each time Moses said no. And at one point, Moses even said something that became a very well-known quote uh, with the with the Jews, and that is that we're going to take everyone. We all will go with us, young and old. We will leave. We will all go, young and old. We will leave no one behind. And the Jews, that's now a common saying, and they say it in Hebrew. But it became that became a watchword for them, and so the Jews are known as people who take care of their own. Because Moses said before Pharaoh, we will all go young and old. We're not going to take the ones who are best capable of escaping. We are going to see every one of our people as valuable. And this is another example of why the Torah, why the Bible was so revolutionary in its time. This very idea just would not have occurred to any other people. So the... The final plague before the tenth plague, the ninth plague, is a plague of darkness. And we have a parallel for this plague in the Book of Mormon. It's a plague that lasts for days, three days, and it is darkness that can be touched as it's described. So, uh, obviously, after the Savior's crucifixion, the people in the New World recorded a similar experience where they were for three days, they were in the dark. They could not see. They could not light a fire. And perhaps they could hear each other, but they, they, the feeling was one of absolute hopelessness. And if you've ever been in a cave, I, I, I think the closest analog that any of us have ever experienced to that kind of phenomenon would be fog. But fog, you can still see, when I have fog at my house, I can still see to the end of my yard. I can see the street light out front. Uh, and if you're driving, if you drive slow enough, you can get where you're going. So if maybe a fog were 10 times as thick as it's ever been, that might come close to giving us the feeling that these people had. That might feel like darkness that you could touch. I don't know. But uh, if you've ever been in a cave, that's, that's darkness that's so complete that it doesn't matter how long you give your eyes to accustom themselves to it. You still can't see anything. They don't get used to it. They don't get any better at spotting things in the utter darkness of a cave. And when they, when the gospel describes darkness that can be touched, that's what it feels like to me is that it, there is no relief to the darkness. No light can be kindled. Uh, and it, it gets to the point where it grips a hold of your heart and it fe- and it's a physical feeling. Uh, the f- it causes not just blindness, but fear. And that was the most powerful God of the Egyptians was the sun God. And that was the repudiation of the sun God, Ra. 
saying, Ra is powerless, and the God who actually has power over the sun is Jehovah, just like he has power over everything else. He was not created by nature. He created nature. And when Pharaoh refused to heed this last and most powerful of witnesses, then you could say that his, the testimony to Pharaoh was complete, that God had convinced him and convinced all the Egyptians. And once again, we have a, we have a parallel to the Holocaust, which is the, the people had to pay the price for Pharaoh's wickedness. Uh, were the people of Germany in the 1930s and 40s, were they as guilty as Hitler and his upper echelons of officers and the soldiers? Were they as guilty in perpetrating the evils of the Holocaust? No. But they knew something, and they were complicit, and they had received enough witnesses. And so when the penalties came, they came over everyone equally. And the same thing is true of the 10th plague. It killed the firstborn of anyone who was not obeying the word of the prophet at the time. I was, I was reminded in reading, in preparing and reading this, I was reminded of our recent general conference. Obviously, we had a, a solemn assembly where quorum by quorum, congregation by congregation, group by group, we sustained and gave our gave our vote to the leaders of the church including a new prophet and we have a means we, we were instantly relayed these images from downtown salt lake where there are the prophet and apostles standing together and within a few milliseconds we were all hearing their words and they unveiled some pretty complex changes in the church just like Moses did. Moses said, here's a change for you. You've been living for 400 years or however many years in the land of Egypt. And here's a change for you. We're going to have a new festival. And it's going to involve five days of tending a lamb. It's going to involve bitter herbs. It's going to involve cooking that lamb and eating it all in one night. And it's going to involve your children asking you questions. Why do we, why do we treat this night different than every other night? And here are, the, your, here are the answers that you will give them. And it's going to involve removing all of the yeast from your home. And you're going to eat no yeast for a week. And you're going to do it this way every year for the rest of your lives and then forever. For all time. And then we're going to leave Egypt. And our lives are totally going to change from one day to the next. Now, obviously, the changes we just experienced with... Uh, home teaching and visiting teaching becoming ministering and the high priest quorum join the most members of the high priest quorum rejoining elders quorum. Those are not as extreme as the changes that the children of Israel experienced. Nevertheless, with in very short order and over the over the population of a very large church, the word of the prophet got out and people were obeying quickly and they were obeying exactly. And I, I was just very touched by that, that uh, twice Moses called for this kind of obedience. Once when he had to bring everyone in from the, to escape the hail, and once when he had to give them the instructions that they would benefit from the Passover. It would be passed over. So all of, so, so here we are, we're 
um, where the morning of the, after the night of the Passover and the, the firstborn of Israel have survived. They emerge from their homes. They were to stay inside all night and they emerge from their homes and they find that the Egyptians, every one of them want them to leave. Um, and there's an interesting, uh, practice that the Israelites engage in as they're leaving. They ask for jewelry and for treasures from all their neighbors and they take it with them when they go. The word in the King, King James Bible is borrowed, but the word in Hebrew is ask. So we don't actually have an indication that they borrowed these things. It, it, it makes it look like they say, oh, we promise we're going to come back. Just let me borrow your jewelry. Uh, they don't actually borrow it. Or the, if they did, we don't have a record of it. The word borrow just means ask. And the Jews, and, and it may have been under a little bit of coercion because the Egyptians wanted the Jews to leave so badly they were afraid they were going to die. And Pharaoh felt the same way. So he said to Moses and Aaron, get out of here, leave now. And there's even some record that he's, they said to each other, we're all going to die. So sure, here, whatever you want, here's our treasure, just get out. That was the message to the Israelites. And they took it and they had a, a limited time before, while they were given this permission to leave, before Pharaoh was going to change his mind, and all of a sudden he was going to realize, now I look like a weak ruler. I, If none of these gods are real, then I don't have the divine... My entire throne was founded on the basis of me being a god, so I don't really have a basis to continue rule. And therefore, Pharaoh changed his mind. So they had a limited amount of time. And that's the whole reason for the haste in the Passover. That's the whole reason for taking the leaven out of the bread is this has got to be done quickly. It's got to be done in haste. And the Hebrews did it. They did it exactly that way. And they formed up by their tribes. And so obviously they'd had some experience in organizing ecclesiastically, and now it became almost a military formation. And they marched right out of there and got out of there as quickly as they could. And they went three days into the wilderness as they'd promised. And it says in the Bible, they could have gone directly for the land of Canaan, but they weren't ready for that. Uh, and also it, it kind of hints that they were trying to deceive Pharaoh. They were trying to appear lost. So Pharaoh comes to himself, realizes what he's done. He's let all of their slave labor go upon which their uh, economy was based, but also uh, they took all the treasures with them and he looked like an idiot. And his ego just could not take that. His pride was too much for him to swallow. So he he got on his chariots and went after him. He took his army. Now the children of Israel were numerous. The it says that that Pharaoh had his six hundred chariots, six hundred chariots plus the rest of his chariots. And we don't know what that means, but we do know that Israel was a, a huge, a huge nation full of people encamped along the banks of the Red Sea. And had they resisted, uh, I don't, just doing the math in my head, it seems like it would have been quite a pitched battle, to say the least, even though we don't have an exact accounting of the numbers on either side. Not having any chariots or cavalry, they were at a, a military disadvantage, but it seems like they would have had the advantage of numbers. But what did they do? They got sarcastic with Moses and said, Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Now, Egypt was, the the religion of Egypt was basically a death cult. And when when we, in fact, the uh, modern Egyptian scholars look at the 
look at the facsimiles in the book of Abraham and say, these look like, these actually look like funerary texts. Everything in Egypt was a funerary text. It was a, a an excerpt from the book of breathing, which is how you breathe when you die. What, what, what happens when you die? So the entire nation of Egypt was just really one big death cult. And that's, then they were trying to point this out and emphasize their point when they said this to Moses, weren't there enough graves? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you could lead us out here to the wilderness to die? And in other words, they had no faith. And later on, it I, it always seemed to me to be unfair. We'll talk a, we'll talk a little bit more about why they spent so long in the wilderness. But it always seemed to me to be unfair that the children of Israel would have spent so long in the wilderness. And here you have an indication of why that was. They had grown up slaves. They had they did not have the frame of mind the the independence that would be required to conquer a new land. They didn't even have the frame of mind to survive in the wilderness. So as we discussed last time, the Exodus and then the Ten Commandments were the twin foundations of Western society, liberty and then morality. And the Israelites at first, they didn't even have enough of a backbone to sustain liberty because as they found out, once they left Egypt, they found out liberty looks an awful lot like camping. And they'd been living in Egypt. They'd been living in luxury. We, uh, and, and it's interesting to note that Moses had gone through this very transformation. He'd left Egypt, and he'd been living in luxury. And he hadn't even been a slave. But, but the, uh, the Israelites had been living in relative luxury. I mean, though they were mistreated and sometimes even killed, they had enough to eat, they had enough to drink, they had a roof over their heads, and they considered that good enough. In retrospect, they would rather be slaves and live than be free and risk dying. And that the kind of mindset that it takes to be free is the exact opposite. As Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. He would rather die than live a slave. So the the mindset has to be completely reversed. And that does, that just doesn't happen As it says in the Bible, it's a journey of 11 days to Canaan, and yet they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And I always thought, oh, it's because they got lost. It's because God confounded them. I don't know why I thought this. I don't remember whether it was scriptural or not. But as a child, this is what I imagined, that God confounded their direction, and they couldn't quite find the the promised land. But that's not the case at all. The, The case was that they spent three days getting out of Egypt, and then they spent 40 years getting Egypt out of them. They had to get the mindset of slaves completely out of their hearts and out of their minds, and it actually took an entire generation because they had to have people who weren't raised that way. It was that pervasive into their minds. Incidentally, the word for neighbors, this is a side note, the word for neighbors that was used in uh, ask treasures of your neighbors, ask them for silver and gold, is the same word that is used when it says, love thy neighbor as thyself in Leviticus. And that's the scripture that Jesus cites when he says the two great commandments are these, love, love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor as thyself, 
And then he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says, who was neighbor unto him that was injured? So, uh, and that's another reason that the Torah was so revolutionary was, thou shalt love the stranger and treat him as a neighbor. There was a commandment to love the stranger. In most, uh, in most ancient cultures, law protected those who were citizens and didn't protect anyone else. There was no law to protect the stranger. And in, here in Exodus, in these chapters, it says, thou shalt have one law. When, when the Passover is instituted, it says, if, if a visitor among you is circumcised, he can keep this festival with you. And then it says, there shall be one law for stranger and citizen, or for Israelite and stranger and visitor. In other words, everyone's protected by the law. That was an innovation of the Torah. And the neighbors were, uh, the, the people of Egypt were thought of as the neighbors. And so they, in fact, later on it's commanded, thou shall not hate the Egyptians. In spite of everything the Egyptians had done to them, they were forbidden from hating them. So that word neighbor has a lot of significance as, it, as it's used here. It's found again and again. Let's talk about the Exodus itself. And I, and I mentioned Bob Marley's song last week, and I, I promised I'd get back to it, and I never did. Or not last week, but a few days ago. Uh, and, and look up this song on YouTube or something. It's a very fun song. Exodus, Movement of Jaw People. And we discussed the name Jehovah. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the word Jehovah is often abbreviated with Jah or Yah. So, J, so Y-H-W-H, as we discussed, is the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word, which is the name of God. But the first two letters were also an, a sufficient portion of the name of God to get across the point. And we see it repeated over and over again in, in proper names among the Israelites. First of which is, that we'll, that we'll find, is Joshua. And that word actually is Yehoshua in Hebrew. And the first syllable, Y-E-H, is the first syllable of the name of God. So, um, and it means Jehovah saves in, or, in, or in Jehovah is salvation. And this, the same abbreviation is found at the end of names like Elijah, which is God. Elijah is short, Eli is short for Elohim, and Jah is short for Jehovah. And so God is, is Jehovah. And Joel, in, uh, incidentally, is the reverse. Jehovah is God. So you'll see uh, Isaiah, that I-A-H, is Jah. So movement of Jah people means a people have been forced to move because of what they believe in. In order to find liberty, in order to find liberty to believe, they have had to relocate themselves. Let's, let's look at some of the examples through history of where this has happened. Where have you, and, and think about it in your mind as I'm talking about these, and, and maybe you can come up with some examples that I didn't. But just in the Bible, already we've learned about 
uh, very soon after the creation, Adam and his family had to relocate. And they went to the land of Canaan, K, uh, C-A-I-N-A-N, not C-A-N-A-A-N. Totally different land. It's one of uh, Adam's righteous descendants. But the children of Adam were going to be killed by the descendants of Cain and the secret combinations. And they had to relocate to the land of Canaan. And again, a few generations later, the people uh, before Noah and Enoch's time, Enoch was preaching to the, to the wicked people, and all of his people had to relocate to the city of Enoch. And, uh, and Abraham left Ur because of his persecution. Obviously, he was just one family, but then he stopped in the city of Haran on his way to his promised land, which was the, the land of Canaan that we all think of, C-A-N-A-A-N. And when he left Haran, he took a large number of people with him. And that was another exodus. And then, and then obviously the, the name, the exodus that we get the name from, the Jews leaving Egypt, that was the main exodus. And it's the most dramatic because God provided for it in miraculous fashion. But the Jews were forced to move again when they were conquered by the Babylonians. Now, when the, the last 10 tribes, as they're called, were conquered by the Assyrians, they were led away. And we don't have a history of what happened to them. But there were two tribes left. And they were conquered by the Babylonians, carried away. They kept their records and they returned. And we, so therefore we still have those records. And we know what happened to them. When they returned to Jerusalem, that was another exodus. That's just in the Bible. In the Book of Mormon, obviously Lehi being persecuted, taking his family and the family of Ishmael and going halfway across the world, that was an exodus. Lehi would have been killed. His family would have been killed for his uh, speaking the truth to the Israelites. And within a generation, there was another exodus in the Book of Mormon, Nephi. And his followers had to leave Laman and Lemuel and their followers, or they would have been killed. If you read the words of Mormon, it talks about the first king, Mosiah. And there's actually, the stories of Mosiah in the, in the Book of Mormon are all about Mosiah II. But his grandfather was a king before him, the father of King Benjamin. And we just have a, we just have a summary of his rule, and he led everyone to the land of Zarahemla. He was the original king that, that encountered the Mulekites, which was a separate group that also left Jerusalem. Again, um, there was a group who left Zarahemla, of Nephites who left Zarahemla, went back to the land of their original inheritance. This is where the wicked king Noah lived. And Alma, the elders' followers, they, they were persecuted and they had to leave. And that was an exodus. The people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they had to leave the wicked uh, Lamanites that they came out from. And that was an exodus. And there's a, there's a little remarked upon episode in the Book of Mormon where the, the Nephites are fleeing and the Gadianton robbers are so powerful and they, that they live as parasites upon all the people. And so rather than continue to be destroyed, all the people gather and they and they have a march from one city to another, and the Gadiantans follow them, but they they can't conquer them because they're parasites. They can't kill the host, and 
the that's an exodus because the people of Nephi believe in freedom and the Gadiantans believe in slavery. And then going back thousands of years, the Jaredites left the Tower of Babel and the brother of Jared was a prophet. He prayed to God and said, please don't confound our language and was led to a new land. That was an exodus. And we have modern analogs as well. The pilgrims leaving England and trying to settle in Holland before finding their way to the new world. Uh, they were, that was an exodus and they, and they were well aware of the spiritual significance and the symbolism behind what they were doing. The, the movie Exodus actually describes the modern day flight of Jews from Europe and other nations from Europe, from Western Europe, Eastern Europe, from the Middle East, not as much from America, but even from America, some of them, to the modern state of Israel and how that state came into being. And that's the story of the movie Exodus. And obviously they were well aware. They were constantly aware of the similarities between what they were doing in the ancient Exodus. And, uh, and then in our own history, the LDS history, we have several examples already as young a religion as we are we have uh, the the early saints fled a number of times first to kirtland and then nauvoo and finally the one that most closely resembles the ancient exodus would have been their trek across the plains to salt lake which was not a one-time event but a continuing event over several years why do i why do i mention all of these why do i tell all of these stories the the best example, I think, for me, the one that the most clearly illustrates the point is when Nephi left his brethren behind, Laman and Lemuel. And they were saying to themselves at the time, our brother Nephi thinks to rule over us. He was told he's going he's gonna to be a ruler over us and look at him. He's given us directions. Let's just finally, now that our father is dead, let's finally do away with him. Let's kill him once and for all. Nephi has warned of this and takes everyone who will listen to him and flees. Centuries later, generations later, the Lamanites have a grudge against the Nephites. And the grudge is that their, fa- their father, the Nephites' father, had usurped the, right, the justified and the righteous rule of their father, the Lamanites' father, over the people. In other words, they'd been told that Nephi had taken away the right to rule. But all Nephi had done is flee violence. And that's what the that's what the Israelites were doing. They were just they had been killed systematically. They had been mistreated, brutalized, beaten for failing to make straw without bricks. And Pharaoh wouldn't let them go and when when Moses showed up to ask for their freedom, He beat them even more severely. And then when they finally were free, he chases them with an army. And the point is this. Satan can never leave the people of God alone to follow their free will. The the very plan of Satan requires compulsion. And the, the beef that the Lamanites had against the Nephites was, you wouldn't let us kill you. That's why we're mad at you. 
you wouldn't let our ancestors, your ancestors would not let our ancestors kill them. They didn't know that's what they were angry about, but in truth, that is what made them upset. That's the same thing that Pharaoh was upset about. You wouldn't let me kill you and enslave you. You wouldn't let me force you to my will. That is what Satan is still angry about today. So when we learn about an exodus, what we're learning about is that what, what God means by liberty is you will have liberty or you will have death. There is no third option. That slavery is death. You have to fight for your liberty so that you can have the freedom to choose me and I will be with you. Now, why did God in this instance, in the ancient Exodus, why did he intervene so miraculously by taking an entire sea and splitting it in two and letting the Israelites walk through on dry ground? And later on, for example, in the Holocaust, between the Exodus and which there were plenty of parallels, why didn't God miraculously intervene to save the Jews then and provide them with a prophet? Didn't he hear their cries then? Obviously he had to. Why didn't he intervene? It's a question without a good answer. And to so to answer it partially, there's another aspect of this entire story that we need to talk about. We, we hinted at it last time, and that is remembering. The book of Exodus is a book of remembrance. The Passover is a feast which is designed to help people remember, and not remember as individuals, but remember as a nation. Let's talk about some of the things that memory does for people, for individuals, and for peoples or nations. Uh, First of all, can you be grateful if you don't remember what someone has done for you? It's impossible. So, and, and gratitude is the very root of all happiness. So if you want to be grateful, you have to first remember why you should be grateful. Jews today are grateful to God for the Exodus, even though they know about the Holocaust. Isn't that interesting? Because all these generations later, because of the Passover celebration and because of the satyrs that they grew up with, they know God. They know there was a time when God did not answer their prayers as a people, and they certainly each know that there is a time when God doesn't answer their individual prayers. But they remember that God once was there for them as a nation and preserved them. So gratitude is one reason. Wisdom is another. How can you have wisdom if you have no memory? And if, if you want to see all the places in Exodus where it talks about remembering God, then go to our then listen to our first part of this lesson. But uh, it's all over in the book of Exodus. In fact, it's the central theme. It is that you have to remember me, God, if you want to be blessed. Can you have faith without remembering? No. There's a, this brought to my mind an interesting talk by uh, by President Eyring, and this is called "Oh Remember, Remember." It's from 2007 October conference. And I'm going to read a, I'm going to read an excerpt from it. When our children were very small, I started to write down, this is President Eyring talking, I started to write down a few things about what happened every day. Let me tell you how that got started. I came home late from a church assignment. It was after dark. My father-in-law, who lived near us, surprised me as I walked toward the front door of my house. He was carrying a load of pipes over his shoulder, walking very fast, and dressed in his work clothes. 
I knew that he had been building a system to pump water from a stream below us up to our property. He smiled, spoke softly, and then rushed past me into the darkness to go on with his work. I took a few steps toward the house, thinking of what he was doing for us, and just as I got to the door, I heard in my mind, not in my own voice, these words. I'm not giving you these experiences for yourself. Write them down. I went inside. I didn't go to bed. Although I was tired, I took out some paper and began to write. And as I did, I understood the message I had heard in my mind. I was supposed to record for my children to read, someday in the future, how I had seen the hand of God blessing our family. Grandpa didn't have to do what he was doing for us. He could have had someone else do it or not have done it at all, but he was serving us, his family, in the way covenant disciples of Jesus Christ always do. I knew that was true, and so I wrote it down so that my children could have the memory someday when they would need it. I wrote down a few lines every day for years. I never missed a day no matter how tired I was or how early I would have to start the next day. Before I would write, I would ponder this question. Have I seen the hand of God reaching out to touch us or our children or our family today? As I kept at it, something began to happen. As I would cast my mind over the day, I would see evidence of what God had done for us that I had not recognized in the busy moments of the day. As that happened and as it happened often, I realized that trying to remember had allowed God to show me what he had done. More than gratitude began to grow in my heart. Testimony grew. I became more, ever more certain that our Heavenly Father hears and answers prayers. So that's one aspect of memory. If you want to know that God is active in your life, you have to remember the ways in which he is active in your life. And I would submit that the better you are at remembering, the more God is going to feel like his efforts on your behalf are not wasted. If you record these things, and if you make a point of being grateful, and you say, you know, three years ago, when I needed you, you were there for me. Thank you. He's going to say, oh, good. There's a chance that when I do something coming up in two months for the difficulty you don't even know you're going to have yet, that you'll remember that too. And so, therefore, I'm going to intervene on your behalf. God, it's, it's really interesting because the way the plan of salvation works, because God allows us to fail at our eternal progression for as long as we choose to. He'll let us wallow in self-pity as long as we want to. Now, he'll reach out to us, and sometimes he'll make our lives even more difficult so that we'll snap out of it. But truly, if we, if we don't ever want to change and believe in him, we have that choice. And sometimes we don't know the answer to get out of our own funk, to break ourselves out of the patterns, the self-destructive patterns we're in. And self-pity is not the way to break out of it. And God has given us commandments. And, and if we'll keep the commandments, eventually he'll teach us the way to break out of it. It's not The commandments aren't always the way out, but the commandments are the way to invite the help of God. And the help of God is the way out. That's one lesson. I want to, oh, and then let's, let's talk about exactly what happened. So the, in the Exodus, so the Israelites are at the edge of the, the Red Sea. The army of the Egyptians is almost upon them. And as soon as the, as soon as the Israelites are walking out of Egypt, they have this cloud appear in front of them. And this cloud would follow them for 40 years. It was the presence of God. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. And in the day, it was, the, it was a pillar of cloud. 
we can't even imagine what this, this was like today. We don't have any, any modern descriptions of what this was like. So we just have to imagine it the, as best we can. And uh, right when the Israelites were about to be destroyed by this invading army of chariots, that cloud went behind them. And it provided light on one side and darkness on the other. And it prevented these chariots from reaching them until they could all... And then Moses stretched out his hand over the Red Sea, stretched out his rod, and the wind blew. And in the whole night, the wind blew. And in the morning, it had divided the Red Sea. And the, as, it's, as it says in the book of Exodus, the, the water was as a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So they walked through. And when they get through, then the cloud disappears. The Egyptians also try to follow. And then their chariots break down. And that's when they realize, too late, that they're in a bad spot. And so they try to turn around, and that's when all the Israelites are at the other end. And daylight is breaking. Moses turns around, reaches out his rod, and the waters crash in upon them. And I believe God waited for daylight so that the Israelites could look back and see. This is what God, to, to, be, to bear witness, this is what God does to to help those who believe in him. And it says in that verse at the end of chapter 14, it says that at that moment, the Israelites believed in God. Now, I don't mean, I don't believe that they actually started believing God existed at that point. What happened was they, before they went through the Red Sea, before they passed through the divided waters, they weren't sure whether God was on their side, what he was going to do for them. And, and when they were on the other side, they did believe in God. And this is why God wanted them to remember. It's because this experience created faith. By way of conclusion, I wanted to go back again and talk about the name of God. We talked about how God, the, the name that God told to Moses was Eye Asher Eye, I am that I am. Another translation of which, I will be who I am. Then he said, you will tell the Israelites that my name, that Yahweh has sent you. Yahweh, H-W-H, to be, the root, or the, the root is to be, H-W-H. And one form of that verb, the form that isn't used anywhere else, but, and so therefore people think it doesn't exist because it's not used anywhere else is Y-H-W-H. He will be, or he is. And we talked about some of the meanings of what that word might be. There's one meaning that I didn't mention yet, and that meaning is to become. So H-W-H doesn't just mean to exist or to be. It also means to become. And the the stem that changes the, the the causative stem in which Yahweh is a form of HWH means that he will cause to be he will cause to exist we talked about how the other controversy over the meaning of Yahweh is well if it's going to be causative then it has to have an object so one of those objects is the lord of hosts Yahweh of hosts he will cause to exist armies of heaven, armies of angels. But when you realize that that word also means to become, 
then you see what the what God was doing with the Israelites. He was causing them to become something. Yahweh means he will cause to become. He took them out of Egypt. They were slaves, not just slaves because of their economic situation and their military situation, their political situation. They were slaves in their own minds. And he caused them to become a nation. As he said, a nation of priests and a holy nation. That didn't happen overnight, but it did happen because of God's influence. It happened because of his revelations. It happened because of his prophets. And it happened because of the atonement. So once again, I was reminded of a general conference talk. In this case, from October of 2004, uh, Elder Bednar. And the title of this one is In the Strength of the Lord. And I'm not going to read from it, but I recommend it highly. And you'll the, the phrase that you will recognize most readily from it is enabling power. Elder Bednar talks about the enabling power of the atonement. And uh, another... I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of specific words from another conference talk, and that is the gift of grace. I believe this one, this one just came into my mind. I believe this one is from 2005. Uh, one second. It's, it's President Uchtdorf talking about how grace applies to us, and God doesn't want to just, it's, I'm sorry, it's April of 2015. God doesn't want to just forgive our sins. That would take us backward. The gift of grace is a great is the gift that takes us not back to the point before we ever committed the sins, but beyond the point when we're perfected from the sins. And I believe that's why God intervened with the Israelites as he did in the Exodus. He didn't want the the point of you will become, he will cause to become was not to save the Israelites from the invading army of Egyptians so that he could take them back into slavery in Egypt, but to lead them through the troubled waters to the wilderness on the other side, to a future that they'd never foreseen and couldn't imagine. As, as C.S. Lewis said, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, but you let God into your house to do a few minor remodeling to do a few minor upgrades and pretty soon he's remodeling and then after a while he tears the whole thing down and it's painful. But it's because he doesn't want you to be a cottage. He wants you to be a mansion. He's going to move in. And so he's got to change the whole thing from the ground up. One final note on the name of God and that is this. If you're looking for an object, quite often in the scriptures, the word Jehovah is put with Elohim. And Elohim is a controversial word as well. It means God, but if you were really to translate it, the, the I am at the end is a, is a plural ending. It means gods. So that phrase, Jehovah Elohim, is usually translated the Lord our God. But it's a sentence. And one way to translate it, and this is almost exclusively from a, an LDS perspective. The Lord our God can be translated, He will cause to become gods. The name of God is a testimony. 
that he is performing a work on you. He is leading you out of slavery, out of bondage, in a miraculous way. And when you respond in haste and with exactness to the prophets of God, and when you have faith, and when you're willing to believe in him and, and step out of your comfortable existence into the wilderness, then you will be brought beside the, the Red Sea. And instead of being, and then you'll scream out, God, help me. And instead of being taken back, as, as President Uchtdorf said, instead of looking backward, the atonement causes us to look upward. You'll be brought through the waters in a miraculous way that you never could have imagined. Now, that looks like, that doesn't look like a comfortable existence. Uh, as the Israelites discovered, freedom doesn't look like living in Egypt. Freedom often looks like camping. So you might spend some time in the wilderness. But God's very name is a testimony of what he's doing. He will cause to become gods. He will cause to become a heavenly army. So you can think of God not only as the creator. Yahweh is a testimony that God is a creator. But more than that, he's a shaper. And you are the clay. He is shaping you into something you could not possibly have imagined. And that testimony is found firmly in the Exodus. And it's found firmly in the testimony that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. You shall tell the people of Israel that Yahweh has commanded you to come unto them. That the master shaper, the master creator, the one who will not leave you alone, the Lord of hosts, he who will turn you into a heavenly army, has sent you. That same God is with us today. He sent our prophet today. And he is listening to our prayers today. God always remembers us. But when, it, when God said to Moses, I have, I'm remembering the people of Israel in their afflictions, that meant he finally decided to come among them, to send them a prophet, to intervene. God always remembers us, but will he decide to intervene? He will remember us as we remember him. He will shape us as we remember him. He will bless us with his enabling power as we remember him. That is the covenant we make in the sacrament every week. May we remember him, allow him to shape us, and find out what it is we can become. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.